dedicated to our heroes. Uh, Psalm 8, which we studied a little bit last week, uh, says this in verse 2. It says, um, from the mouth of infants and little children, you have ordained praise. That God has put his praise in the mouth of children. And that he's done so, uh, verse 2 says, to silence his enemies, to make a mockery of the devil. And that the devil uh, hates children. And one of the coolest things, the sound God loves, uh, is the sound of his children singing his praise. And so we take it really serious that you entrusted your kids to us over the last week. Uh, we have uh, tried to love them and serve them and cheer them on. And we will continue to do so. We will continue uh, praying for them and cheering them on. Um, and if you'll let us, we'll help you raise them because they are awesome and precious. Uh, today, we are actually going to study a lot of what our kids have been learning uh, this past week. Uh, some people would call that coincidence, um, but I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in, uh, that God works all things together for our good, and God orchestrates things uh, to teach us and to, to make things go deep into our hearts. Have you ever uh, had it in your life one day where it seemed like everywhere you go, you heard the same lesson again and again and again and again? You went, you called your mom, and she gave you some advice, and then you went to work, and there was a training, and they gave you the same advice, and then you went to church, and the sermon was about the same thing. Yeah, if not, then maybe God's not working on me like he's working on me. I'm stubborn and hard-headed, so God's got to tell me three or four times. And today, he's going to teach us. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Hebrews is near the end of the Bible. It's about 90, 95% of the way through the Bible. Uh, it's that far through this Bible, so you can see it's a long way through the Bible. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, it's our custom to preach straight through books of the Bible so that we don't pick and choose from God's Word, uh, but we let all of it sit on us and bear its weight on us and change us. And today we're going to look at verses uh, 10 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. We're actually going to look at the same passage again next week because there's so much here I couldn't unpack it all in one week. Let's read this together. I'll read it, and you can read along with me in your Bible. It says this. And bringing, and bringing many sons and glory, daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. But the one, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, and I will sing your praises. Or again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become merciful and faithful high priest, in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those were also being tempted. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. 
Friends, we have so much to cover, and so I'm going to give you a summary at the beginning, and I'm going to pray that you'll hold on as I unpack each of these things and try to convince you of their truth and their biblicalness. So even before I give you an introduction, this is what I'm going to try and teach you today. First, that Jesus brings us to glory by taking us by the hand and leading us to our goal, which is our goal is the one for whom and through whom all things exist. Our goal is community with God. And Jesus is the pathfinder, the pioneer on the road to the good and mature and perfect life. That's point two, that Jesus is the pathfinder and pioneer on this road to the good, mature, perfect life. Three, that Jesus was made useful and mature and yet perfect through suffering. And finally, that you and I cannot expect to be made perfect or mature or useful in any other way than the way that in Jesus that that is the road of suffering. And then lastly, we're going to remind each other that when the road of Jesus is hard, when following Jesus is difficult and seems like the most difficult life you could live, we're going to remind ourselves that there is no easier, softer way. This way of surrender to Jesus, of complete abandon to Jesus, is the easier, softer way. And every other way is a lie. Every other thing that promises to satisfy our hunger, our joy, to give us security or power or status or belonging or love is counterfeit. This week, we pretended to be shipwrecked here on this island. And we brought our kids here and we coached them uh, to, to be here, lost on this island, where monkeys throw coconuts, where jaguars roam, and where toucans fly. It was an island full of loud music and belly laughter, full of jumping kids and spilled milk. It was awesome. For a minute, can you imagine being shipwrecked, stranded, alone, desperate, struggling for food, suffocated by loneliness, uh, struggling to get by, worrying hour after hour that you're going to die here by yourself? you're slowly going to starve to death, or that your mind is quickly going to fail. Honestly, many of us don't have to imagine that hard, because you and I, in the words of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, have shipwrecked our lives. Maybe you've shipwrecked your life, and you know the crushing pressure of desperation, of the daily descent into unmanageability, of the deeper and deeper circles of hell and being powerless to alter the course. You know the pain of how did we get here, of crushing loneliness and the shame that keeps you alone instead of asking for help. If you've ever shipwrecked your life, you're not alone. You're in the right place. This is a church of people who have shipwrecked our lives. We too have been shipwrecked. We too are spiritual refugees. We've been to divorce court and family court and wondered, how did I'll love you forever turn into a battle for our children? We've been to chemo and to dialysis and wondered, God, where are you at? We've been to rehab and 12-step meetings. We've been to the abortion clinic and to the bail bond clinic. We've been there wondering, how will I ever get out of this mess? How will God ever pick up the pieces of this broken and destroyed and abandoned life? We've cried tears into the boxes we packed with the broken dreams and broken promises of broken relationships. We've felt the disintegration 
of jumping from relationship to relationship or career to career or experience to experience or high to high, hoping we could find what we were looking for and realizing we were more content. And there at the bottom, some of our shipwrecked souls, the fortunate among us, wandered into a room where someone read some promises that went something like this. If we are painstaking about this stage of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on us. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling, that nagging feeling of uselessness and of self-pity, it'll disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things, and we will gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize. God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. These unrealistic promises. And many of us, in the state we were in when we got to church, or wherever we were, thought, yes, you bet your life they're unrealistic. You have no idea where I've been, what I've gone through, what I've done. Those promises are as unrealistic to me as filet mignon is to the person stranded on that island. And just then, as our thoughts of despair that nothing good could ever come of this shipwreck, broken down, bad decision riddled, heartbroken life, we heard a whole crowd of sinners and saints cry out, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but they will always materialize if we work for them. You see, friend, this morning, Jesus sent me to tell you that he is bringing you to glory, that those promises I just read, and even greater, are yours if you surrender completely to the leadership of Jesus. If you trust him with every day and every decision, you will see him in the words of Hebrews chapter 10 bring you to glory. He has come to bring you from shipwreck to glory. Jesus wants to take you and me and give us a spiritual awakening, to give us a life connected and energized and healed by God. He wants to bring us to God the Father for whom and from whom and through whom all things exist according to Hebrews chapter 10. He wants you to be fully mature, fully actualized, fully realized, fully alive, fully perfect in God's presence. He wants to take you from the rubble of a self-made hell into the glory of a grace-given grandeur. And how can Jesus possibly do this? How can Jesus rob us of shame and restore us to glory? How can we be moved from pain to perfection? Well, that's what this passage is about. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us, quote, in bringing many sons and sons and daughters to glory, that is restoring them to honor and to status and to respectability and to beauty and to fulfillment and satisfaction and safety. The Bible says it was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect 
through what he suffered. Here, the preacher of the book of Hebrews calls Jesus the pioneer of our salvation. That word pioneer is archegos in Greek, and it means the pathfinder, the captain, the one who goes first in the battle, the one who leads the way, the one in a, who is first in a long line of followers who are looking for their salvation and their victory. He is the front runner. He is the way maker. He is the pathfinder who is leading us out of the valley of the shadow of death and on to the mountain. He is the pioneer leading us to the glory, to that place of restoration and spiritual maturity. And then the Bible says something crazy strange. We can all get on board with someone to show us the way out of our mess. But the Bible says something strange here about that way maker, the pathfinder, the pioneer. The Bible says in verse 10, it says, Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered. Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered. Jesus was perfected by suffering. Wait, what? Suffering is perfect. Don't go together. Nothing, suffering doesn't make anything except pain. And that's our first objection, but the second is a, a religious one that shows up. Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Already perfect, how could Jesus be made perfect? I had somebody stop me at the yard sale yesterday to ask me about the sermon title on the front of this uh, church. I think he knew I was the pastor somehow. If he wasn't perfect before, does that mean Jesus was somehow sinful before? But bluntly, the problem is not with the Bible, but with us. Hebrews is not saying that Jesus was sinful beforehand and somehow needed to be purified. The Bible is not implying, implying imperfection in Jesus. You and I tend to think in dichotomies of either or. But think about what it means to be perfect. What is a perfect human being? Unfortunately, most of us think about what it's not, someone who never fails or messes up. But to be precise, that is what a, human per a perfect human being is not. What is a perfect human being, positively? The word here that means perfect is teleo. It means to accomplish or to bring to an end, to be uh, to bring to its intended goal, it's tello in Greek. It means to be complete or mature or fully developed, fully grown, fully brought to the place of actualization. It means finished, wanting nothing to be complete and in working, useful, good order. And so again, what is a perfect human being? What we think if we pour our collective imagination, if we study the scriptures, we see that a perfect human being is courageous and patient and compassionate and faithful and wise and generous and hopeful and friendly and truthful and truly repentant and humble and loving. A perfect human being is courageous. They don't shrink back in fear, but they do the right thing even when it's scary or dangerous. A perfect human being is loving, but not just for those people who love them back. They love those whom um, they don't know. They love those annoying people. None of us want to hang out with them, and they love even their enemies. A perfect human being is compassionate, looking for mercy and empathy, looking with mercy and empathy on those who are suffering rather than judging them or trying to figure out whether they're worthy of love. A perfect human being is hopeful even when it looks like there's no hope, even in the dark, trusting God, keeping the faith when God is silent. A perfect human being is patient, not eager for get-rich-quick or a slave to the immediacy. A perfect human being is self-controlled, reigning over her desires. 
why, knowing how to handle the baffling situations of life, knowing how to navigate the moral complexities of life with truthfulness and graciousness. And on top of all that, this person has to be humble, not self-deprecating or applauding, not making much of their perfection, nor rejecting it, but rather fixated on the victories and the needs of other people. And friends, you and I generally believe Jesus was compassionate and gentle and patient and hopeful and courteous and wise and the like. And so Jesus was perfect. But how did Jesus become perfect? How did he become these things? How did he become compassionate and gentle and patient and hopeful and courageous and wise and the like? How did Jesus become perfect? Well, according to Hebrews, it says he became perfect, he was made perfect through suffering. You see, perfection, glory, does not mean having those things, but it means growing in them. Perfection is not a static goal, but a maturity, a growing maturity and fullness. And you know this, right? Like, think about this with me. There is a difference between the patience of Jack, my three-year-old, and the patience of Job. There is a difference between the courage required to go to kindergarten and the courage required to go to battle. One is not less courageous. Little kid gets off the bus to go to kindergarten as courageous as I'll ever be. And yet, there are degrees of courage. There's growing courage. There's courage that grows and patience that grows. And that's why Luke can say that the perfect boy Jesus quote, grew in wisdom and stature and favor before God and man. Is Luke saying Jesus was stupid before that? No, it's not saying that. You can grow in wisdom without being stupid. According to Luke, Jesus grew in these things, and he grew through suffering. But how does one become compassionate and humble and courageous? Are these things that we're born with, or must they be learned? The truth is, they must be learned opportunity after opportunity. You and I pray for patience. God, I want patience. And I want it now. <laughs> we usually don't add that last part, but we're pretty upset when all of a sudden, like, I don't start singing Kumbaya in traffic. Right? Like, I'm still, like, surprised that the guy on the radio is annoying me, that that person in front of me is still a jerk. God answers that prayer for patience by offering the opportunity to wait. You ask for patience to deal with your rebellious daughter, and God gives you long grocery store lines and a pot of water that won't boil no matter how much salt you put in it. Because God is giving you chances, low-risk chances, to wait. And by waiting, you learn patience. And this is how Jesus learned patience. Look at the guys he walked around with, his not-head disciples, just like me. Think of all the times Jesus had to say like, really, fellas? Really? We've been doing this for three years. How many times have I taught you this lesson and you still don't get to understand it? He says, oh, ye a little faith, do you not yet understand? If you don't understand, how's the world going to understand? Every time his disciples failed to get it or asked him to make them on the right and the left of the throne, or when Peter steps in and says, you can never go to the cross, every time they do something foolish, Jesus and Jesus holds his temper. And he taught them the same lesson again. Jesus grew in patience. And you and Jesus will only learn patience by suffering delays and suffering slow people. 
You see, Jesus got angry, and he had to learn to express that anger as a human being full of adrenaline and, you know, and, and all kinds of those chemicals that go crazy in my brain without losing his temper. He had to express his anger, his righteous anger, rightly. He had to learn gentleness, which is to, which is to discipline and to correct without rage or revenge. Without using words as weapons, he had to learn to express his anger and his words to restore, to build up, to instruct, to reconcile, to redeem. Courage. How do you learn courage? Well, courage is learned when one is afraid and one does the right thing anyway. I tell our middle schoolers all the time, if you are never afraid, you can never be courageous. When one is well aware of the danger and the risk and yet steps out in faith, that's courage. The way Jesus did in Gethsemane where he looked at the cross, knowing the cost, knowing the agony, and still goes. Jesus is the only courageous God. Out of the pantheon of humanity, he's the only one who exposed himself to risk and to harm in order to save. Every other God was safe the whole time and so never had to be courageous. But Jesus was vulnerable and exposed and tortured. You see, most of us, all of us want these things. All of us want courage and patience and compassion and empathy. We want to be non-judgmental. We want to be loving folk. We want to be folk full of joy and belly laughter, full of contentment and satisfaction. We want to be people who walk around not afraid of judgment. We want to be people who trust God in the small stuff, who trust God to provide when we're hungry. We want to be the people who trust God with our kids. We want to be the people whose lives shine like diamonds in the night sky. We want to be what Jesus is. Many of us, those of us who become Christians, desperately do, and those of us who aren't, who doesn't want to be this kind of person, full of joy and satisfaction and contentment and hope, the kind of people that people want to be around. These are the people we flood ourselves with. The truth, friends, is that all of us, all of us, every single one of us, wants this kind of life. We all want to be loved and safe and rescued. We all want to know a new freedom. We all want to know a new degree of happiness. We all want to not regret or hide our past. We all want to not have to close the door on our past. We all want to comprehend the word serenity. We all want to know peace. We all want to know that no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we can still be useful to the people around us, that God can still use us, that we're not so wrecked to be useless. We all want to know, we all want that feeling of uselessness. We all want that feeling, that nagging self-pity to go away, to disappear, to evaporate in the thin, thin air. We all want our whole attitude and outlook on life to change. We all want the fear of other people, the fear of being judged, the fear of not being pretty enough or successful enough or good enough or smart enough or good at talking enough or whatever. We all want that insecurity to leave us, and we all want the fear of economic insecurity to leave us. I want to be able to have a yard sale without being worried about whether I got enough money for a three-generation dresser that doesn't work. We all want to intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We all want to realize God is suddenly doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We all want to know that God is active in our lives, that God's showing up, that God's helping us, that God's carrying us, that God's grabbing us, that God has not abandoned us. Don't we? 
I'm not the only person who's desperate for that stuff, who wakes up hoping for that stuff, who hears these promises and says, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please let it be true. But you see, those promises only come if we are painstaking about this phase of our development. If we are painstaking about surrendering our will to God's will, if we are willing to get out of our way and invest ourselves in spiritual growth, if we are willing to surrender to Jesus and to say, your way, not my way, your way, not my way, I can't run my life, I'll try your way, Jesus. If we're painstaking about that surrender, the problem is, honestly, none of us like pain. You can't be painstaking without we constantly look for an easier, softer way to the joy, to the redemption, to the shame-free, regret-free, useful living that Jesus is offering. We all want the belly laughter and the serenity that we were meant for. We all want that community with God, that experience of transcendence and existential joy that comes with being in God's presence. We all want that glory. But the road that Jesus, our pioneer, the, the way, the steps he's marked out for us, they look brutal. They look too brutal. That road of rigorous honesty, that road of surrender, the road of generosity, the road of self-denial, the road of suffering, but the but the old church used to call the Via Dela Rosa, the way of sorrows, the way of Calvary. We don't want that. Jesus, isn't there a shortcut? Can we like bypass the cross and head straight to glory? Can we bypass the suffering and head straight to maturity? Can we bypass the weakness and head straight for perfection? You see, this is the nature of all temptation. The nature of temptation is looking for an easier, softer way. Temptation is always to skip suffering, to skip the unpleasantness, to find an easier, softer way to maturity. But that way is always counterfeit. Remember, every temptation goes this way, right? The devil always offers you something you already have and offers you a false way, a shortcut. In the garden, he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, if you eat this apple, you won't have to listen to God. You will be God. You won't have to suffer the agony of listening. You won't have to suffer the agony of subjection. You will be equal with God. For us, he says, I know you want peace. I know you want peace. You know what will calm your heart and settle your nerves? One more drink. Booze and drugs, they promise serenity, but they can only deliver oblivion. And there is a mile of difference between oblivion and surrender and serenity. Perfectionism, that desire of getting it all right, of being impressive to everyone, of never failing, of never messing up, of proving to everyone that you always got it together, that Pinterest, Facebook, LinkedIn, Snapgram, Instachat, life. It promises approval, but it enslaves you in perpetual judgment. It enslaves you in one more tryout, one more Instagram post, maintaining appearances, 
business success and career development and wealth accrual and savings accounts and life insurance and handguns on our hips and locks on our doors and security alarms. They promise us security. And then they imprison us and worry. Did I change the battery from smoke detector? Anyone who strives to live long apart from God has found that the things I think will lead me through life are the things that lead me to shipwreck. The things I think are rainbows and butterflies and whatever those are, sunflowers or black-eyed Susans, is a mirage. We've looked for it in all kinds of different places. As a church, some of us look for it in, in chemicals. Some of us look for it in the approval of others. Some of us look for it in our relationships. Some of us look for it in cash. Some of us look for it in domineering personality. And we found the things we do to survive kills the things we love. And Jesus is saying, I know. I know. There's only one way to the glory. There's only one way to the glory. There's only one way to the perfect. And there's only one way to the actualized perfect human being. There's only one way to joy and satisfaction and contentment. There's only one way to be rid of shame and guilt. It's going to involve self-denial. And it may hurt like hell. But it's as close to hell as you'll ever go. Now we know it's the road he walked. He's the pioneer. He's taken every step of your journey before you did. And that's what these three quotes in the middle, these enigmatic things in the middle, are trying to show us, but we don't know the Bible as well as the Hebrew church did. We see, we can tell this church knew their Old Testament and they trusted the Old Testament. And so the Hebrew author quotes these three verses. But these people know the Old Testament the way you know Bon Jovi. And so he says, so you know what I'm talking about, right? If I say something like, Tommy used to work on the job. <laughs> you don't think, okay, who's this guy Tommy? Where's he at? What's he doing? Why is he talking about Tommy? You immediately jump to the most important part of that song, right? Which is, You're not wondering who's Tommy and who's Gina and why are you talking about him? You know the song is about living on a prayer and trusting it when everything was they let it work. And these people hear this first sentence, this first sentence, quote, I will declare your name to my brothers and my sisters in the assembly and I will sing your praises. That is a positive statement about how good God is. It is a person standing up and saying, I am here to tell you in front of everybody, in front of the whole world, God is good. God rescued you. God saved you. God is awesome. You can trust him. And we're like, okay, whatever. Sounds kind of cliche. Sounds like a proof text. But it's not. That's, the, that's at the very end of Psalm 22. Do you know the most famous part of Psalm 22 is? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? That's the, whoa, living on a prayer. That's the part that everybody knows, because that's the part that Jesus cries on the cross. My God, my God, why has 
forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing the groans of my lips? You see, the Hebrew church hears this, and they know this praise of declaration can only come after, only follows the exclamation of agony. They hear this and know that this one who is now rejoicing was the same one who was being mocked and stripped and pierced and hung on a tree, the one who was jaded and beat to death. They know this declaration came after the suffering. Because God did not abandon his beloved to the grave, but raised him to, to glory. That him who was destroyed, him who descended into hell, into the absence of his father, was raised to glory. Has proven God's faithfulness in this, that you cannot go lower than Jesus. And yet God was faithful to him and raised him from the dead. And so now he gets to stand and declare, even at the cross, God is good. Even when there's no hope, even when God seems to be absent, God is working all things for your good. God is working to make you mature, mature and perfect, justified and glorious. He knows that this is coming. And then they hear that next sentence. Quote, I will put my trust in him. A sentence which sounds like, oh, well, of course it's easy to trust God when things are good. But they know the whole story like I was just talking about with Bon Jovi. That sentence, I will put my trust in him, was originally in the mouth of a dude named Isaiah. And you know what happened to Isaiah? Isaiah came to tell people about God, to warn them that the way they were living were going to lead to shipwreck and to turn and to follow the ways of God if they wanted joy and security and flourishing. And the people said, no thanks, no, we'll go our own way. We'll trust in Egypt to protect us. We'll trust in political alliances and stored up capital and we bigger weapons. And when that doesn't work, we'll trust in wild living and get ours while we can get ours. And these people know how that worked for Israel. They know when the people ignored Isaiah, he led to the shipwreck of a whole nation. And then in the midst of that shipwreck, Isaiah is saying, you can trust in princes, you can trust in sex, you can trust in career. I will trust in the Lord. He's faithful. He is good. You can trust him. Even in the dark, you can trust him. Even when there seems to be nowhere, you can trust him. Even when you're suffering, you can trust him. Nobody says this better than the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You can remember it's 828. Don't have to remember two numbers and you sound like an Oreo. Eight is a cookie. That's free. You don't have to pay me for that. But we know that all things work together for the good of those who God loves and is called according to his purposes. All of us want to believe that verse, right? All of us want to believe that it's working for our good. But we don't realize that 829 tells us what our good is. What's our good? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. How did Jesus, for lack of a better sense, become Jesus? By walking through suffering and trusting God. By walking through rejection and agony. By learning patience the hard way. By learning courage by going through by learning compassion, by suffering, and realizing not everybody who suffers is guilty. How did Jesus do it? By suffering. 
I will return your sins courage, compassion, joy. How will you learn?